Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 222. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Full the day. We have a show that is full. Tell you what's coming up. We've got a promo for Tales to Terrify, Starship Sofa's sister podcast that's delving into everything horror by our good friend Larry Santuro. Then we have the third and final part of Cory Doctorow's The Martian Chronicles. Next up is a fact article by JJ Campanella. Then we have an interview that Peter Seaton Clark did with the writer of Exit Centre Stage. Then we get into the final part of that vintage serial that we've been playing there, all to do with Sherlock Holmes, Exit Centre Stage Part 3. Then, <laughs> you're not going to believe this, we have a fact article by none other than Matthew Sanborn-Smith, Fiction Crawler. And it's, it's now down to annual. And whatever Matt's on, I want some of that. So that is a quick round of what's coming in today's show. I want to get straight in and play this promo. Please do pop over and subscribe to our sister show now, Tales to Terrify. This is Larry Santoro. Horror. What is it? Where I am, it's dark. Winter. We had days in the low teens and single digits most recently. Eight inches of snow. Wind, of course, it's Chicago. It's night. There's still a bit of a howl, but the temperatures, they've risen. All that white, that hard, shiny cold is sagging into dirty piles. The melt is flowing, running, dripping. It's just outside. Maybe you can hear the spatter. Listen. Well, 
Maybe not. But it's there. Maybe that's what horror is. Our senses, what you hear, taste, touch, see, being different from what you feel inside. Maybe. Horror is an emotion. It's not a field of literature. Several writers have said that. But what is that thing we call horror as applied to books and stories? Is it your buddy, dead in Vietnam, buried with honors just up the way? And now, in this wintry night, comes shambling down the street toward you. Is it some small creature grown incredibly large, incredibly hungry? Is it something you know cannot be standing just outside your door? Is it being trapped a thousand feet below the earth with only one way out and that way blocked by something or some things dark and monstrous? Is it a bright, sunny day in the ordinary world, yet your gut tells you, run? Is it... Well, Tales to Terrify won't answer the questions of what horror is. We'll simply let you peek at it, hear it, feel it. All of it. So, stop by. Tales to Terrify, every Friday and forevermore thereafter. Okay. That's it for me for now, Larry Santoro, here in Chicago, winter, here in the night, and pleasant dreams. Links on the front of the website. Like I say, it's getting tremendous download figures. Please pop over there and say hello to Larry. You know, drop me emails as well and have a listen. It's fantastic. It scares the rivers. <laughs> so, part three of Cory Doctor's The Martian Chronicles. In my eyes, this this story should be up for a Hugo Award. It is fantastic. This is the third part. It's narrated by Jeff Lane, who has just done an amazing job of this. Thank you so much to Cory and to Jeff. The Starship Sova is very proud to present The Martian Chronicles, Part 3. Previously on Martian Chronicles, teenagers David, Vijay, and Helene are on a colony ship coasting toward Mars. The six-month journey is taking its toll on the ship and the passengers, especially with the delay of data needed to play the very popular online role-playing game Martian Chronicles. Vijay learns, by eavesdropping on the crew who has been getting data from Mars, that the game of Martian Chronicles is played very differently on their new homeworld. Four large corporations control everything and work together to squash any competition. Not good news for the noobs heading towards Mars to start a new virtual life. On top of that, real-world worries about leaving everything behind and starting their real lives over again is stressing everyone, especially David's parents. And now, the conclusion of Martian Chronicles by Cory Doctorow. Here's how you get to Mars. First, you boost for a couple hours at 1G, which gets your ship really moving. Since there's nothing in space to stop it, except a few stray hydrogen atoms and the odd gust of solar wind, it'll just coast Marsward pretty much forever. 
So you switch the engines off and ride your momentum ever and ever Marsward. If you've timed it all correctly, Mars should also be moving toward you, swinging around the sun at 13.3 kilometers per second and closing fast. Once you're closer to Mars than you are Earth, you flip the ship over so that your main antenna array is pointing at the red planet and reboot the ship's computers, bringing them back online running a Mars-compliant OS that runs on Martian time. Then about 90 days later, you turn the engines back on and boost away from Mars for a few hours because 13.3 kilometers per second and closing fast is fast. Fast enough to turn your rocket into a cloud of atoms and a giant shockwave if you run into Mars instead of going into a gentle orbit around Phobos space for transfer to a ground shuttle. We were almost at turnaround, which meant that we were nearly equidistant from Mars and Earth. That meant that almost no one was playing the game anymore, because it was at 640 seconds of latency, meaning that a message sent to Earth took 320 seconds to get there and 320 seconds to get back, which made playing the game nearly impossible. I'd planned to do an orderly shutdown of DBOS Corp long before this, liquidating my shares and giving the proceeds to a charity that helped new players get established in the game, then leaving my lieutenants to break up the firm's assets according to their share blocks and either merge with other corps or try to make it on their own. Without my authorization, none of that would be possible, and the company would just putter on for a couple of months until the fact that there was no one at the steering wheel caught up with it and it crashed. I'd put far too much work into it to allow that to happen. Or, at least, that's how I'd felt when we left for Mars. Now, in the middle of the black and endless sky, it was hard to figure out what was so important about this imaginary company and its imaginary money. But there was a certain peace in shuffling the paper for my old, familiar company, making the spreadsheets dance to their traditional tunes. I was breaking up my stock, modifying the board, changing the org chart to shuffle corporate officers around. My lieutenants had been sending me increasingly worried notes by long-delayed email, asking me when I'd get around to do this, promising, good-naturedly, to give me a real thumping when they got to Mars if I didn't see to this in good time. Well, now they'd be happy. I fired off the signed orders to the Earthside game server and waited patiently while the speed of light oozed its way across the reaches of outer space and over to planet Earth and then back again. But then it was done and the strings were cut. I was free. My company was no longer mine. I was, as of this moment, not a player in either Earthside or the Marside Martian Chronicles. I found I was pretty happy. I set off down the corridor, whistling, heading for one of the observation decks where there was a huge video wall that displayed the view of space before us, Mars glowing with enhanced color. I was whistling The Red Hills of Mars, a folk song that I'd learned at Mars camp when I was all of six years old, and as I made my way along, someone else joined in, her whistle a very tuneful trill. Yes, her. It was a grown-up. In a uniform. Specifically, it was Laney, as in Laney, Laney, no complainy, making her way down the same corridor just a meter or two behind me. She smiled at me as she drew near, her normal theatrical scowl disappearing. You sure seem happy about something, she said. I shrugged. I never knew what to say to Laney. She was everywhere, all the time, and always seemed to know the gossip before any of the colonists did. 
She was the only one on the ship who'd actually been to Mars. She'd lived there for 10 years and returned to Earth on the first ship back to retrieve and orient the next batch of colonists. Just closed out my Martian Chronicles account, I said. It's kind of nice not to have to worry about it for a while. At least, until turnaround. She nodded. David Smith, right? DBOS Corp? You know it? I couldn't believe it. Oh, sure. There's only a thousand of you here. I know a lot about all of you. She tapped her temple. Trick memory. But you stand out, of course. DBOS Corp? That's a legend. I shook my head. Not a lot of grown-ups pay attention to Martian Chronicles. I said, you really play? I played on the Mars side server, she said. Lots of us did. Gave us something to do. Helped us get to know each other after we made Planetfall. And so I looked up the game when I got to Earth. Watched it. Didn't play, though. No time. Not while getting the eagle ready. I said very carefully, I hear it's a very different kind of game on Mars. I didn't want her to know about Vijay's eavesdropping, but I also felt a weird kind of kinship with her, wanted to open up to her. Oh, you hear, do you? Her face was still friendly, but I could hear a hint of the familiar sternness in her voice. People do talk. I was self-conscious, like I'd said too much, blown it. I started to mumble an apology and move on, but Lainey stopped me. David, she said, her voice low. I know how rumors spread. I wouldn't want you going away with the wrong impression. Why don't you stop by my cabin during office hours and we'll chat about this? She looked away, checking her workspace. Lainey and the crew all had working workspaces on the Eagle. The rest of us had to use handheld computers and said, Start in an hour. I'll book you for my first slot, okay? It wasn't really a question. Okay, I said, and felt a jet of sick fear. Spreading dispiriting rumors was one of the worst kinds of whining on the eagle, and Lainey had lots of punishments, big and small, that she could use to punish offenders. The next hour was an agony of worry. I didn't want to go home, didn't want to go to the JC lounge, didn't want to run into anyone I knew, so I ended up hanging around Lainey's cabin on deck one, the crew deck, waiting for her hours to start. As soon as the clock ticked over to ship's 1100 hour, her door clunked open and there she was, still in her crisp ship's uniform, clean lines, and a single gold braid around her left bicep. Mr. Smith, she said, how good of you to come. She stood aside and ushered me in. Her quarters were twice as big as the cabin my whole family shared, and it felt very spacious, even though our house back on earth had had bathrooms bigger than her entire cabin. She had her own bathroom, I noticed. She had a little writing desk and some pieces of red Martian rock in a frame over her fold-up bunk. The room was as neat as a pin, not a single thing out of place, no dust or dirt. Compared to the rest of Eagle, grubby, buckled, it was like an operating theater. Sit, please, she said, gesturing at a round, fold-out seat. She rummaged in a small fridge and withdrew two cold bulbs of orange juice and passed one to me. Thirsty air on this ship, she said, cracking the seal on hers. We keep using water for reaction mass as we go, which means the air is going to get drier and drier. By the time we make Mars, you're going to be as desiccated as a mummy. Drink up. She slurped at her bulb. I cracked my own and drank it. Look, I said, still feeling scared. I'm sorry if I said too much. I know I shouldn't be passing rumors. She waved at me impatiently. Forget that. That's not why you're here. Listen, David, you've been kicking ass on MC for years. 
You're about to start over in a new world, start everything over. And as you've heard, things on Mars are different. Not just on Mars, but on the Marside Martian Chronicles. Do you understand what things are like there? I think so, I said carefully. No whiners, right? No pose, succeeding on your merits? Her expression was unreadable. Amusement? Anger? Impossible to say. Yes, David, but here's the thing. There's always winners and losers. You understand that? I nodded. Sure. Even on Mars? I nodded again, more slowly. What do you mean by that? You've heard how things are on the Marside game? I've heard... things. What things? Um... That a few companies control the whole game, that no one can get ahead unless they pay off the big guys. She nodded. That's one way of putting it. Another way of putting it is that there are some very, very successful people on Mars. These people saw the opportunity, took it, and made sure that they'd keep it as long as they could. They're playing the game better and harder than anyone else. Wait, I said confused. Are you talking about Martian Chronicles or Mars? She gave me that mysterious look again. There isn't really a difference on Mars. Martian Chronicles, Martian life. Why bother coming up with a functional stock market, communication system, and banking system when MC has it all built in? Martian Chronicles was built to model the kind of society that Mars Inc. and Mars Colony were hoping to build. Why wouldn't you use it as the template for the actual Mars Colony? I tried to take this all in. But it's just a game. She looked impatient. Just a game? What is any of this except for a game? Why am I dressed up like a member of some kind of space navy? Why do people who have all the money they could ever spend try to earn more? Why don't you stab your friend when he gets on your nerves? It's all a game. It's all rules. It's all play. It may not always be fun, but games aren't just about fun. I struggled to get my mind around this. The game is life on Mars? Her impatience grew. Look, David... I'm talking to you today because I thought you'd be a smart kid. If you're just going to sit there boggling at me, you can go back to your quarters. Get with the program, will you? Now I felt scared again. Okay, okay, I see. The game is life. Life is the game. Gotcha. Good. Now when we flip the antennas around, you're going to get your account on the Martian servers and you're going to start over as a total noob. You're going to have to figure out how to survive in a game that's plenty rougher than you've ever played. There's a pretty good chance it's going to chew you up and spit you out. It's going to do that to a lot of you. And as you know, I'm in charge of heading off whining, making sure it doesn't happen. So I'm here to help you avoid getting into the kind of situation where you'll be whining. I couldn't figure out what she was talking about, but I didn't want to seem dumb, so I kept my mouth shut and nodded. Here's the thing. There's a thousand colonists headed to Mars. You're going to double Mars' population, but let's be frank here. You're latecomers. The people who've been Mars-side for ten years, those people took a much bigger risk than you're taking. So, they're earning a greater reward, too. That's only fair. It's meritocracy, after all. But I know people. They whine. They complain. Even colonists, especially colonists, when they discover that colonial life is harder than they reckoned for. And when colonists get too exercised about their bad luck, 
Well, let's just say that on Mars, as on Earth, there are plenty of people who are willing to take by force that which they can't earn by their wits. And we can't have that. We especially can't have that when a thousand new chums are fresh off the boat. That's a volatile situation. My mouth was dry. I drank more OJ. It tasted metallic like everything on the ship, having been reconstituted with water from the ship's condensers. Sounds, um, complicated. It's not complicated, she said. She managed to make me feel stupid every time she spoke. It's simple. The thing is, we want to head off any feeling that new colonists can't make it on Mars. We need an example of how fair things can be, if you're the right kind of plucky adventurer with the right entrepreneurial spirit. We want a poster child for success in the second wave. This isn't complicated, David. I reached for the OJ, but my bulb was empty. So, I stopped. You want to set me up as, what, as a success? She smiled condescendingly. We're going to start up DBOS Corp. on Mars. It'll be a very successful corp from the get-go. You'll have lots of great contracts in hand the second you make Mars fall. Those contracts will pay off big and bigger. You can hire your friends. Hell, you can hire your father. You'll be a symbol of the fairness of Martian society. You'll have some silent investors who help you get by, starting you out with decent capital and context, and who'll take a piece of the action. This is a good deal, David. You've proved that you can build a business once before. It's absolutely plausible that you'd do it again. And having a 15-year-old millionaire is going to be great news. Everyone's going to go nuts for it. You'll be a hero. The word millionaire hit me like an electric jolt, made me understand the scope of what was being discussed here. Lady, I said, and it came out a croak. I cleared my throat. <clears> throat> Laney, that's really, really wonderful, but... She cocked her head. I'm surprised there's a but here, David. This isn't the kind of opportunity that comes along very often. I thought you were a businessman, the kind of person who seizes the moment. Hell, we did a lot of research into this. Went deep on all colonists. There were 50 potential candidates, but you were the clear winner. Were we wrong? I remembered who I'd been, what I had been. DBOS Corp. was one of the biggest, most successful corps in the history of MC. I'd built it with fair play, hard work, and smarts. And luck, of course. I wasn't just a little kid. I was a success. I was smart. I had done something extraordinary, and I didn't let anyone push me around. I sat up straighter. Laney, you've made your offer, but I don't make snap decisions. I think things over. This is no exception. I'll get back to you. She nodded and dropped her offended expression. Okay, that's fair. Mind if you say a word about this to anyone, I'll push you out the airlock. She smiled when she said it, but not very much. Ha ha, only serious. There was a magic time there, after the latency to Earth became too high to play on the servers there, and while we were still too far from Mars to do anything except look at slowly updating spreadsheets from there, when nobody thought about Martian Chronicles. I trickled back into the junior colonist lounge by dribs and drabs, coming in for a few minutes at a time, keeping mostly to myself, 
though I nodded affably enough at anyone who nodded at me, even Helene and Vijay, who seemed to be up to something intense in their private corner. I didn't care. I didn't care about anything. Here's what I sent to Laney the day after she made her extraordinary offer. Dear Laney, in regards to our meeting yesterday, I have carefully considered your generous offer and on reflection, I have decided to take you up on it. I'm looking forward to a long, profitable relationship. Sincerely, David Brian Oglethorpe Smith III, CEO DBOS Corp. Mars, CEO Retired DBOS Corp. Earth. Not that I didn't antagonize over it. I wanted to make it on Mars because I was smarter and better, not because I just got lucky. But I didn't just get lucky. Laney's syndicate picked me because of the job I'd done running DBOS Corp. on Earth. And let's be honest, if the only way to win the game was to get in good with the big guns, I'd be crazy not to get in good with them. There's no nobility in failing. Plus, I'd get to hire my dad, which would be just delicious. Boy, was I ever looking forward to that. That's really what got me, daydreaming about what it would be like after Mars fall, when we'd all pour out onto that strange world, bounding high in the fractional gravity, our body clocks already adjusted to the Martian day from three months with the Eagle's systems running on Mars standard. We'd go to our housing, grubby new chums around the sophisticated, happy, settled Martians, and we'd start to try to find our fortunes, no whining allowed. Even when there were no fortunes to be had, no whining allowed. There my pals would be, my father and mother and everyone, trying to find a way to get ahead on their new planet, where all the good opportunities seemed to have been taken. And there I'd be, rebuilding DBOS Corp., catching all these great breaks, growing more profitable, growing bigger, getting famous, being a poster child, a hero. And I could be generous. I could welcome in the new colonists, give them positions in my big, successful corp, even Helene and Vijay who'd come to see me as the kind of titan of business I'd always known I could be. I'd been shocked by the idea that on Mars, Martian Chronicles didn't just influence life, it was life. But after giving it some thought, I realized that I'd always been better at MC than real life, so why shouldn't I be glad that I was heading to the place where Martian Chronicles ruled? Nobody was thinking about Martian Chronicles in the junior colonist lounge. Not even me. Once I'd sent that note to Laney... I realized that there was no way I could possibly end up as a debt-haunted drone in someone else's corp, and my subconscious mind stopped worrying about it. The crazy anxiety dreams I'd been having ended. The fact that Dad was still all tied up in knots didn't faze me. My future was set. The second day after Apogee, I drifted into the junior colonist lounge. It was my morning, along with a third of the ship. I was on second shift, which ran from ships 0800 to 1600. I had a couple of my computers with me, a handheld and a bigger control unit that I used to drive my goggles and other devices. Both had just received Mars OS, the Martian operating system that ran on Martian time, each second lasting about 1.03 Earth seconds, and used Martian protocols and converted over the whole interface, spell checker and everything, to simplified English. In theory, it ran on everything that was computerized, phones, handhelds, tape measures, music players, PCs, pedometers, headphones, cameras. But in practice, Mars OS didn't work as well as we'd been told it would. Laney just shrugged her shoulders at the complaining colonists and told them, No whining, gang. The engineers who built Mars OS have been living on Mars for the past 10 years. Technology has moved on. The source code is on the ship's server. 
Some of you are wicked techie. Figure it out. Or throw away your goo-gahs and get used to living with fewer gadgets. Or hell, wait until we make Mars fall and see if anyone's made a Martian replacement you can buy. So that's what we were mostly thinking about in the JC Lounge. How to get all our toys working again. Most of the cheap handheld devices were DOA, which was especially hard on us kids since no one wanted to be a dork carrying around a huge computer that you needed a handbag or a backpack for. If you couldn't wear it around your wrist or neck or shove it in a back pocket, you wouldn't be caught dead carrying it. The kids who were really into the tech side of things had suddenly become monster rock gods, able to lay hands on your precious device and bring it back to life with a few incantations. They were charging all the market could bear for it, too, getting some of the best stuff on the ship, filling huge floating low-G net bags with booty, painting kits, knives, and multi-tools, jewelry, prized t-shirts, musical instruments, the pathetic possessions we were able to squeeze into our luggage allowances. A lot of kids were way pissed at them, accusing them of gouging, but I shrugged and went back to our room for my harmonica and my set of permanent grease pencils. If they could do it, and I couldn't, why shouldn't they charge all the market could bear for it? Besides, once DBOS Corp was running hot and black on Mars, I'd be able to buy back my stuff and more. But as I lined up to hand over my treasures, Vijay and Helene drifted over to me. They were bungeed together, which was a convenient way to stay close enough to speak quietly amid all the eddies, breezes, and drifting debris in the JC lounge. As they neared me, Helene held out her hand to me as though she wanted me to help her break so that they could join me in waiting in line. I was unexpectedly glad to see that hand. I'd missed it more than I dared to admit myself. I took Helene's hand and braced myself to help absorb their minimal inertia. As our fingers made contact, Helene whipped her arm up, keeping a tight grip on my hand and jerked me out of the queue. We began to do slow donuts in the JC lounge, dizzying whirls that stopped only when we reached a bulkhead and Vijay stopped me. I went from glad to furious in three nauseous circles around the JC lounge. Once we were velcroed down, I glared at them. I've been waiting in line for an hour, I hissed. Now you've blown it. That was the line rule on the eagle. Get out of line, lose your place. And the eagle was all lines. Helene crossed her eyes at me and stuck out her tongue. First of all, it's nice to see you too, stranger. Second, who cares about the line? Third, I can fix your stupid computers and I won't charge anything for the favor. Fourth, we've got lots to talk about. I took a moment to absorb all of this. You can fix my computers? She rolled her eyes. Duh. I've been fooling around with Mars OS for years. Can't believe the rest of you didn't bother. It's the bloody operating system that our new planet runs on. Knowing how it works is as important as knowing how to work a rebreather or patch a cold suit. Give. She held out her hand. I passed her my handheld and my main computer pack and some of my peripherals. She pulled a chopstick out of her hair and stuck one end of it, it was tipped with memory pins I saw, into the handheld and began to poke at it. You got your data backed up? She said. I nodded. She stuck the tip of her tongue out of the corner of her mouth and unfolded a keyboard and screen from her back pocket and rubbed them against the handheld to get them connected to it, and then went to work. Vijay had been silent until now. Finally, he said, Dave, I'm very glad we found you. We have something we would like to discuss with you, in utmost confidence. We were tethered to a relatively deserted stretch of bulkhead in the JC Lounge. Well, deserted for the JC Lounge would have been crowded anywhere Earthside, except for a mega stadium concert. Here? 
He smiled. My place, he said. He led us back down his private maintenance corridor, where his tiny leftover toilet was. We were strung out sideways again, Helene behind me and Vijay in front of me, and I hunched over a bit so that they could see each other. You're a very mysterious person sometimes, Vijay, I said, trying for a joke and failing. Vijay did me the courtesy of a weak smile. You know what the crew are planning to do with MC? He said. You remember? Forming a syndicate, offering their labor as a package? I remember, I said. It's totally illegal and doomed. If the MC market is as tough as they say it is, the big corps will laugh them off and crush them like bugs. I agree, Helene said. Me too, Vijay said. The problem is, they're not thinking big enough. Look, these syndicates have clobbered competition on Mars. They have the whole thing sewn up. But there are only 1,000 Martians today, plus a few kids born Marsside. We're about to double their population. That is going to be massively destabilizing. I started to get deja vu, and I started to get uncomfortable. Didn't I just have this conversation with Lainey? Here's the thing. When the markets there go into chaos, all bets are off. If there was a leadership team with the new corp, a better corp, one that would give the new chums a better deal than the syndicate would, well, who wouldn't join it? Helene said behind me. I wished I could see her face. Even the old-timers who were at the bottom of the food chain. Imagine if there was a trio, a former senior auditor, a former high-powered raider, and a former successful CEO. Imagine the power of a trio running a company with the integrity of the Auditor General, the guts of a raider, the acumen of a leading CEO. We wouldn't have to take whatever deal the syndicates there are offering. We could double the syndicates, institute a fair, competitive market. My mouth was dry. The thing was... It was a good plan, a wonderful plan. If they'd made me this offer before Lanny made hers, I would have jumped at it in a second, and that's without knowing that MC was real life on Mars. But now, I'd made my deal with Lanny. I'd already committed to the same syndicate Vijay and Helene were planning on destroying. I had a momentary vision of going to Lanny with this, telling her that I had two clever friends who'd be perfect at helping provide cover for her plan. We could start our radical, destabilizing corp, bring all the new chums into it, let everyone think that we were destroying the old order, and meanwhile, we'd be taking our own orders from the syndicate. We would be the syndicate. But there were so many ways that could go wrong. Could I trust Helene? She was a raider after all. She specialized in dismantling corps without regard for the work that went into them. Could I trust Vijay? You don't get to be an auditor without being stiff-necked about the rules and regulations. And what if Lainey said that she didn't want any help from my friends? What if she made good on her promise to shove me out the airlock for discussing it? No, I didn't really think she was serious about spacing me. But with Lainey, there was always a tiny corner of me that believed she meant it. And there I was, trying to talk myself out of trusting my only two real friends for millions of kilometers in all directions. I felt... I don't know, disembodied, like I was hovering over myself, watching myself decide to turn my back on my buddies. I wanted to turn and run, but in the narrow slip space with Helene behind me and Vijay before me, there was no way I could. And there was a better me, the me that wasn't floating above myself, but the me that was in myself, sweating so hard it ran down into my eyes, that needed to talk. I need to talk to you, I said. We are talking, Helene said from behind me. I ignored her. 
My eyes were locked on Vijay's. What did you call it? Utmost confidence? Uh, I need to talk to both of you in utmost confidence. Vijay looked raved. Sounds like you have a secret. Helene sighed. <laughs> How come everyone's got a big dark secret around here? Dad burst into the cabin, outraged. Is this true? He said, his eyes red-rimmed, burning, his chest heaving. Mom leaped off the bunk where she'd been working with some of the ship's polymer maintenance putty to make one of her little abstract sculptures. David, please calm yourself, she said in her I-really-mean-it voice. We all listened when Mom got that tone. It made Dad pull up short like he'd been whacked over the nose with a rolled-up magazine. He took a deep breath. Sorry, he said. Sorry. Okay. I have just heard the most remarkable rumor about our son here, he said, gesturing at me. A truly incredible rumor. Mom started to say something, but I got to my feet and she stopped. It's true, I said. What's true? Mom said. I reached for my handheld and dialed up the ad we'd sent to every mailbox on the Eagle. Members needed. Announcing an altogether new kind of corp. The Martian New Chums Cooperative is open to anyone who is willing to work for the cause of a fair deal for all Martians. Why? Because the deck is stacked on Mars. Four large companies monopolize all the wealth, power, and privilege on our new home. And when you land, you can expect to spend the rest of your life working your guts out for the new aristocrats. You may think that this only applies in Martian Chronicles, but we've got news for you. Life on Mars is the Martian Chronicles. No one's mentioned it to us yet. I wonder why not. But it makes sense, doesn't it? After all, why set up a government, stock exchange, messaging system, and all the other machinery of a society when you've got a perfectly good one sitting right there on your game server? Oh yes, there's lots they haven't told you about life on Mars. Rather than whining about it, we're doing something about it. The New Chums Co-op will not trade with the cartels. We will make our own oxygen, generate our own power, and manufacture our own goods, buying and selling from anyone except the cartel. We won't have the same stuff, but your ray guns will go to fellow New Chums, and their ray guns will go back to you, and we'll all prosper together. We'll be a democracy, one member, one vote, and we'll help each other. Want to join? Great. The New Chums Co-op will begin signing on members in 72 hours, which should give you plenty of time to get your kids to show you how to use Martian Chronicles, get you set up with an account on Mars server, and verify what you've read here. In the meantime, watch out for dirty tricks from Mars Inc. Watch out for unexplained network outages. Watch out for your fellow colonists being arrested in the name of preserving morale. Aren't you old enough to make up your own mind about what's true and what isn't? Do you really want a big daddy corporation locking up people who say things that it disagrees with? Membership opens in 72 hours. Meantime, any questions, ask the co-op's founders. Vijay Mukherjee, Senior Auditor, Retired. David Brion Oglethorpe Smith III, CEO, DBOS Corp., Retired. Helene Gonzalez Ginsburg, Liquidity Specialist, Retired. P.S. If we get arrested... The co-op is still on. Organize yourselves. No whining. Mom looked at me as if I'd sprouted another head and three extra arms. 
Dad was trembling slightly, suddenly looking much, much older. I leaned back in my seat. I'd known this was coming, had feared it, had come through the fear. It was a relief to have it out in the open after all the stress of wondering what would happen when my parents found out, when the whole ship found out. Helene said to me, the fear of the consequences are always worse than the consequences themselves. I don't think they can afford to arrest us, not after everyone on the ship has read it, I said, trying to sound casual, trying to convince myself that I was calm. Dad slumped. I can't believe that you... Mom put her hand on his arm. Is it true, David? Which part? I said again, trying for nonchalance that I didn't feel. All of it. I could see that beneath her calm exterior, she was ready to lose her cool. All of it is true, I said. Mars is run by four corps and everyone works for them. You can verify it for yourself. Just create a Martian Chronicles account and start looking around. And yes, Mars runs on Martian Chronicles server. Have a look and you can see it. Our quarters are assigned in the boroughs, Warren. The spaceport is booked for the Eagle's arrival. The City Hall Forum is full of people talking about real life. We had decided not to mention Laney's offer to me. I'd promised her that I'd keep it a secret, and I didn't want her to be able to go around telling everyone that I didn't honor my promises. I needed to be squeaky clean if I was going to be on the co-op steering committee. And it's true that we've started the co-op. Technically, it's just another corp, but Vijay structured the bylaws so that it gets run like a cooperative. He's good at that sort of thing. Vijay? Mom said. The Pove, Dad said. The one he pals around with. He sounded shell-shocked. We're all Poves now, Dad. I swallowed, looked into his eyes. It was hard to do. We're headed to Mars to clean the toilets. That's the thing that we discovered. And the people Mars side, they're fine with that. After all, if we were too good for toilet cleaning, we would have been in the first wave. They'll say that they're too good to clean toilets, and they'll prove it by pointing out that we're all broke, and the only jobs they have for us are the worst, crappiest jobs. Anyone who disagrees will be a whiner. That had been the real surprise. Once Mars OS was running on all my devices, the message boards filled with Martians fantasizing about how great it would be once the next wave of colonists arrived, how they'd be able to solve the labor shortage and finally hire people at, quote, affordable wages to do the real work of running the colony. A tear slid down Dad's cheek. David, you're making trouble for us, for our family. Mom pulled him into a hug. Shh, she said. Sounds like trouble was already there. Dad kind of collapsed into her arms, and she met my eyes and made a little scooting gesture behind his back. I took the hint and left. Standing outside the door was Laney. She was perfectly composed, leaning against the corridor wall. There was no one else in the corridor. Laney had that effect on people. If you saw her standing somewhere, you'd go somewhere else. Hello, David, she said. I'd talked this over with Helene and Vijay, too. Helene had been busted dozens of times, and Vijay had made plenty of busts. They knew how it went. I nodded and held my wrists out as though for handcuffs. She smiled and shook her head. Oh, I'm not going to put you in the brig, young Mr. Smith. Not at all. The last thing I want to do is create a martyr for your little cause on Mars. When I told Vijay about this, he nodded curtly and said, Smart. But I just want to put a little whisper into your ear, a little seed of doubt for you to remember when we land on Mars 
when the people I work for take serious steps to ensure that you don't upset the apple cart. You ready for it? I nodded, not trusting myself to speak, barely trusting myself not to wet my pants. It's this. You could have been a king, a CEO, rich, famous, powerful, admired. You could have had it all. But now, no matter what happens, no matter whether your little co-op is crushed or soldiers on raggedly, you will always be a pove and a leader of poves. She whispered it like a curse, and I knew she was right. They arrested us 48 hours after Mars fall, every co-op member. Conspiracy is in restraint of trade. We put up quite a defense and accused Mars Inc. of the cardinal sins of whining at every turn. And they did let us go, eventually. And by the time they did, nearly every new chum had signed up for the co-op. And the game got really, really fun. There you go. What a fantastic story. Honestly, I've been so pleased to play that and be able to bring that story to the kind of, you know, Starships Over audience and to a wider listeners as well. If you've come from Boing Boing, thank you so much for sticking around and listening to that. It's been fantastic having you here. Figures for this download, for this these kind of three shows have just been out of the roof. It's amazing. Do stick around. That would be lovely to have you back for some more. Next up is Mr. JJ Campanella. Fact article, sir, for January 2012. Jim. Greetings and a happy new year to all my excellent listeners. Welcome to this January 2012 science news update. I'm your host for the never, never controversial science podcast, Jim Campanella. It seems that some issues will simply not be put to rest. And so it is with my story from a couple of months ago involving American science majors. Even after last month's response, I have continued to get emails telling me that I am still in the wrong and did not go far enough with my comments. Among the most vocal and certainly the most thoughtful of these emails came from listener Greg Granger. And I have to admit that Greg pointed out a blind spot that I did simply smooth over last month. And his point was this. Sometimes science and math teachers really are horrible and make your academic lives hell. Here's a quote from Greg. Quote, I have a BS major in computer science, and I switched from math to computer science after I began. It was a very difficult decision for me. Part of the reason was that in one class, I asked the professor to explain the transition between two steps in a proof, and his answer was, you just know. In context, this would be like asking you how you know that DNA contains an adenine-thymine base pair and getting the answer you just know. In a different math class, I was confused when I received only partial credit for the proof I provided in an exam. I compared my answer with a classmate and noticed the answers were almost identical. But unlike me, he received full credit. After class, I asked the professor about this difference, and he told me that he knew my classmate understood, but he wasn't sure I did. I was attracted to math because I thought it was objective, but found that not only was it subjective based on my experience, but further, it was quite possibly based on the unexplainable, unquote. I feel for you, Greg. 
you are correct that I should have spoken about the teachers out there who stink and are unmotivated. I was so focused on those factors having nothing to do with the teachers that I lost sight of the fact that a lousy teacher can completely screw up your academic career. And I am sorry that you did not have the best of experiences. Most of us have had experiences just like you. One of my physics professors in college, a very famous British scientist who was one of the men responsible for inventing the electron microscope, told us, the students, the very first day of class, that he hated teaching and preferred to be in the laboratory than a classroom. He was sure that we hated being there as much as he did and insisted that we would just have to put up with each other the rest of the semester. That is not the way to motivate students to love science. And equally, if a professor grades unfairly in math or any other subject or gives less than helpful answers to sincere questions, then they are just discouraging any academic growth you may have. One of my older colleagues, now gone from teaching, used to actually grade exams based on how much they liked your answer to the point where they would actually give negative points and take off more credit than a question was worth if they felt your answer especially terrible. You could hypothetically get a negative grade on an exam out of 100. At the same time, this professor gave extra credit if they liked an answer. Now that is blatantly unfair. Another professor that I know of now, and students rightly despise, locks the door to the classroom when they begin a lecture. You may be 10 seconds late, but they will not let you into the classroom. That is a blatantly horrendous and unfair offense against someone who wants to learn and has paid for that privilege. I can go on and on, but I will agree with you. I should not have been so defensive about faculty. I think part of it was that I think the bad teachers are the minority, not the majority. So I too quickly dismiss people who insist that the teachers are the problem. I should have agreed that teachers are part of the problem, but still, only part. Greg and several other listeners also made this point. I completely forgot to point out that simply by sheer population numbers, Asia has already surpassed the U.S. by 700 million people. All things being equal, India and China should have about two to three times more gifted people in any particular area than the U.S., those who point that out are absolutely correct. I should have discussed it. Simply by sheer numbers, Asia will surpass the U.S. very soon in terms of talented and trained scientists as China and India open more and more universities. At the same time, if you look at graduate schools in the United States, that scenario may already be the case. Most doctoral students in the United States are now already from Asia, not from the U.S. I would guess that at least 50%, if not more, are from Asia, and many will go back to Asia once they are trained to teach at newly opened Asian universities. It used to be that those trained scientists stayed here. That is often no longer the case. Hence, another reason the U.S. is losing scientists. Okay, I really hope this is the last time that we need to discuss this. Three months with this same theme recurring has been a bit too much for my taste. Please, no more emails on the topic. I will not talk about it anymore if you don't. Thank you. Let's talk about some real science now. The first story of the night involves sharks, and something about sharks that came as a surprising fact to me that I had never heard of before. It is very common among closely related species that share common niches to mate, hence producing fertile hybrids. Except in plants, 
That was thought to be uh, fairly rare at one time in animals. However, genetic evidence has suggested that animal hybridization is actually quite common. Even human genetic evolution, as we have discussed previously, shows evidence of human Neanderthal hybrids. Along with some colleagues, I've been doing population genetic studies on bluegills at a big lake in New Jersey here, and we have often come across hybrid individuals between bluegills and a sister sunfish called a pumpkin seed, and you can tell by the coloration and body morphology which are hybrids. So I supposed that it was a fairly common thing for fish species to hybridize. I was a bit surprised to learn that until recently, in the last couple of weeks, no shark hybrids had ever been found. Dr. Jess Morgan and collaborators from James Cook University in Australia discovered the first hybrid shark off the waters of Australia and published their results in the journal Conservation Genetics in December. Morgan says, quote, The mating of the local Australian blacktip shark with its global counterpart, the common blacktip, was an unprecedented discovery with implications for the entire shark world. Unquote. Her find was made during classification work off Australia's coast, where they performed genetic tests that showed certain sharks to be one species, even though they physically look like another. The Australian blacktip is slightly smaller than its common cousin and can live only in tropical waters, but its hybrid offspring have been found 2,000 kilometers down the coast in much colder seas. Morgan says that this could mean that the Australian blacktip could be adapting to ensure its survival as sea temperatures change because of global warming. It took me a while to kind of figure out the implications of this, but I think it's this. The original parental species could only live where the water was warm and tropical, whereas the hybrid could live where the water is cooler, and so can take up niches farther south where it is colder and where the parental species can't go. Hence, the hybrids can expand their ranges massively into the cooler water and not even compete with their parents. It turns out the hybrids are more vigorous in colder water and warmer waters than their counterparts. And if the waters of the oceans continue to increase in temperature, the hybrid may be able to compete in both the temperate and tropical niches way better than their purebreed parental species, and hence may be able to survive and reproduce much better. The hybrids were extraordinarily abundant, accounting for up to 20% of the black-tipped shark populations in some areas, Morgan said. In short, ladies and gentlemen, we are seeing microevolution taking place here. We are seeing selection of an organism that can best survive a particular environment and reproduce. For those who are still wavering in whether evolution actually exists or not, this is a nice object lesson. The next story has to do with what some people term fringe genetic experiments, but frankly, what were fringe experiments even a few years ago are now becoming much more mainstream. Before I tell you about this story, I want to make clear my views on the use of embryonic stem cells in research. And no, I'm not going to go into any kind of a religious or anti-religious or political or even moral or ethical tirade. I am going to simply stick to the science facts. For those of you who do not remember, embryonic stem cells are tissues taken from an embryo during development. Yes, the embryo has to die for the tissues to be harvested. These cells have a limited ability under laboratory conditions to develop into various tissues that can be used therapeutically. For years, ignorant politicians and the consistently foolish out in Hollywood 
have screamed that embryonic stem cells are the answer to a million human maladies, including most famously paralysis, a la Christopher Reeves. There's only one problem with this. Embryonic stem cells have never, never in all the years of research cured anyone or shown any promise in curing anyone. You are welcome to look at the scientific literature yourself. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Government science agencies continue to throw good money after bad in embryonic stem cell research despite the growing evidence that it is the wrong line of endeavor. Why? Because it is a political football that has nothing to do with whether the work is accomplishing any real science or not. Am I saying abandoned stem cell work? No, because adult stem cell research is making headway, and treatments with adult stem cells have actually cured dozens of human ailments. Adult stem cell research has shown over and over again that cells need to develop so that the inborn genetic controls are in place. By working with differentiated cells, you have much tighter control over the activity of the cells. Put simply, why are we wasting our time, money, and effort on something that is quite plainly dangerous? Yes, it is dangerous. Embryonic stem cells are dangerous because they are untamed biologically. Those cells have not undergone enough of the long developmental process to be under any kind of control. And frankly, one has to be nuts to inject cells that may develop into just about any tissues into a patient. In 2009, the United States FDA allowed clinical embryonic stem cell trials to progress. The company, Geron, was allowed to test the stem cells on 10 patients with severe spinal cord injuries. Most of the treated were unaffected by the embryonic stem cells. And when I say unaffected, I mean nothing was cured. They were the lucky ones. The unlucky one was a boy in the trial who ended up with spinal and brain tumors resulting from stem cell therapy. Not only was it difficult to predict how exactly the cells would differentiate, but stem cells have a tendency to divide. They are very much like cancer cells that way. The injected fetal cells were expected to divide, hopefully to create new neural tissues, but the scientists had no way of knowing for certain where the division would lead or how much division there would be. Well, now they know. So now that you know my views on the subject, here is the actual science story. 
The paper was published in the January 5th issue of the journal Cell. The work was done by Dr. Shukrat Mitalipov of the Oregon Health and Science University and his colleagues. And what did they do? Well, they created monkeys that had six different parents. I can hear the wheels turning out there as you think about this. Wait, wait, what did you say? Six? Six parents? How is that possible? Well, these rhesus monkeys are what are called genetic chimera. If you remember your Greek myths, the chimera was a monster made up of a bunch of different animals thrown together. These monkeys did not come about by any normal sexual process. They carry six different sets of genetic information in them from six separate parents. There were two questions that the paper examined. First, how far can you push cloning using embryonic stem cells from primates? And second, can you make primate chimeras? In mice, when embryonic stem cells are injected into a blastocyst, the resulting animal is a chimera containing cells from both the original blastocyst and the injected cells. Now, a blastocyst is a ball of cells. The outer part becomes the placenta and the other supporting tissues, while the embryonic stem cells inside give rise to the actual fetus. In new experiments, the researchers found that both embryonic stem cells grown in the lab and fresh ones could not incorporate themselves into a developing primate fetus. The paper states, quote, this work may show that the embryonic stem cells that we now have are not quite as potent as we think, unquote. So to answer the second question, to create the chimeric primates, the researchers had to take a step backwards from the blastocyst stage to embryos at the four-cell stage of development when they could not get the embryonic stem cells to incorporate into the embryos. The researchers created the chimeric monkeys by fusing six of the four-cell stage embryos together. They named the three monkeys Chimero, Roku, which is Japanese for six, and Hex, which is Greek for six. They report these genetic chimera are all normal and healthy, and I can tell you from the photos that I saw in the journal article that they look absolutely normal. No extra limbs, no extra heads. Because rhesus monkey stem cells behave so much like human embryonic stem cells, researchers think that the findings can be extrapolated to human cells. That means that they are beginning to suspect that embryonic stem cells are not as powerful as they once thought. Since no one had ever made a chimeric primate before using stem cells, the evidence that human and monkey cells are able to blossom into any type of cell has been mostly circumstantial. Well, now with this failure of making chimeras from embryonic stem cells, it appears that all that circumstantial evidence was probably just speculation. The researchers who did this work are now looking at other primate embryos to see if the limitation they saw in the rhesus monkeys is something species-specific. In other words, if it's only a problem with rhesus monkeys and you don't see it in other primates. It should be interesting to see what happens. The next story may be a little late for those of you who over-imbibed on New Year's Eve, but at least for you Americans out there, this may help after Super Bowl Sunday if you get totally inebriated. An article that came out this month in the Journal of Neuroscience, written by Dr. Jing Liang of the University of California, Los Angeles, suggests that a kind of new hangover cure may be on the horizon. I say kind of new because this cure is based on Asian folk medicine, 
that has been around for more than a thousand years. Liang says that an extract isolated from the seeds of the Asian tree, Hovenia dulcis, was first described as an extraordinary hangover remedy in the year 659 AD. In the new study, Liang and her team tested one ingredient of Hovenia called dihydromyricetin, DHM for short. They tested this on rats who are affected by alcohol just like humans are. After rats were given the equivalent of 15 to 20 beers in a very short time, the animals passed out and lost the ability to flip over when placed on their backs. The rats took about an hour after this bender to regain control of their bodies and flip back over. Now, this sounds like something out of James Bond, like an anti-alcohol pill, but when the rats received a concentrated shot of DHM along with their alcohol, they tolerated the booze better. They still lost the ability to flip themselves over, but the stupor took longer to take hold, and it only lasted about 15 minutes. As far as hangovers are concerned, DHM also benefits beyond the period of drunken stupor as well. A dose of the compound helped ease rat hangover symptoms two days after an alcohol binge by curbing anxiety and susceptibility to seizures. Now here's the most amazing bit. DHM seemed to curb alcohol consumption in the rats. Untreated rats allowed to drink alcohol gradually started consuming more of it. However, rats that drank DHM-laced alcohol did not increase their consumption, the paper found. This may be overstating the case just a bit, but Liang says, quote, when you drink alcohol with DHM, you never become addicted, unquote. Another author of the paper was not quite as optimistic as Liang about the breakthrough. He said, quote, though these results are exciting, they don't mean that a shot of Hovenia extract can enable you to have a night of consequence-free binge drinking. Alcohol has many effects on the brain, and DHM may not block all of them, unquote. So far, Liang and her team have found no side effects from DHM. The researchers now plan to test DHM's effect on people. If you are desperate to try Hovenia on your next bender, or after your next bender, I suggest you find your nearest Chinese herbalist. You will not be able to get pure DHM for injection, obviously, but I suspect that the herbalist will have dried plants right up there on the shelf next to the ginseng. My pronunciation is probably horrid, but the plant is called Zhi in Chinese. That's Z-H-I-J-U-Z-I. This next story frankly leaves me seething because I truly get upset by scientific abuses. For years you have been told that red wine is good for your heart and can help keep you young. And you have been told by nitwits like me that compounds in wine like resveratrol can help lengthen your life and improve your cardio fitness. Well, it turns out this is all untrue. How do I know? It seems that the scientist who discovered this and published it allegedly made it all up. Dr. Dipka K. Das, University of Connecticut researcher, who studied the link between aging and resveratrol, has committed more than 100 acts of data fabrication and falsification, the university said a couple of weeks ago, throwing much of his work into doubt. Das directed the university's cardiovascular research center and published in 2007 that, quote, the pulp of grapes is as heart-healthy as the skin, even though the antioxidant properties differ, unquote. The university said an anonymous tip led to an investigation that began in 2008. 
A 60,000-page report resulted from that tip. The report outlines 145 counts of fabrication and falsification of data. Other members of DAS's laboratory may have been involved. The university doesn't know. And they're being investigated, the report continues. Uh, The University of Connecticut has declined $890,000 in federal grants that were awarded to Dr. Das, according to the statement that they published in Reuters. They have begun dismissal proceedings against the good doctor. Additionally, the university has alerted 11 journals that published Das's work, and it has worked on the case with the U.S. Office of Research Integrity, which investigates alleged misconduct by federal grant recipients. Remember that if you take federal monies and then make up data, that is fraud. Federal fraud. Dr. Das is in a lot of trouble. The journals that got bilked include the journal Antioxidants and Redox Signaling, where Das was one of the editors-in-chief, and the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry. I want to finish up this science news with an update on the exoplanet search. Well, The astronomers said that it was simply a matter of time, and they were right. And apparently the time has finally come. They have finally found planets that are Earth-sized. The newest exoplanets found by the Kepler Space Telescope's industrious eye are two rocky Earth-like planets hovering around the star Kepler-20, which is about 950 light-years away. The two planets have been dubbed Kepler-20e and Kepler-20f. Dr. David Sherboneau of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics wrote the paper along with his team, and it was published in late December in the journal Nature. These are the first Earth-sized worlds confirmed by the Kepler team, but they are still not quite what the astronomers have been looking for. The astronomers' ultimate goal is to find habitable worlds that are not too distant from Earth across galactic space and which are Earth-sized planets and at the right distance from their stars to allow the presence of liquid water. They have not yet found an Earth twin. The paper reports that Kepler-20f could have an atmosphere, but suggested that extremely hot conditions on Kepler-20e would have evaporated any atmosphere. Kepler-20e is a bit smaller than Venus, about 87% as wide as the Earth, and completes a trip around the star every six days or so. The other, Kepler-20f, is about 1.03 times as wide as the Earth, and a year on that planet lasts about 19 days. Because the planets are so small, they're probably made of the same rocky ingredients as the Earth. The paper also stated that, quote, depending on where and how it formed, Kepler-20f could even have developed a water atmosphere if it started out with the amount of water we had on Earth and Venus. It's probably long gone, though. I guess the actual makeup of the planetary system of Kepler-20 is very weird, too, which accounts for why the Earth-sized planets are not in the life zone. The Kepler-20 system is comprised of three large planets, Kepler-20 b, c, and d, and then two Earth-sized ones, all tucked in nearer to their star than Mercury is to the Sun. Moving out from Kepler-20, the five spheres alternate in size with the smallest of the planetary litter bracketed on either side by their bigger brothers and sisters. The weird part is that all those planets are stuck in there in an orbit so close to their star. That is a first from what the paper suggests. Charbonneau calls the system a, quote, 
shock architecture, unquote, which will be a nightmare for astronomers to explain. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Make sure you take your Hovenia shots before you next pub crawl. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go. That guy's been there from the beginning. Jim, thank you so much. Jeremy, what a star. Next up is an interview that Peter Seaton Clark, our good friend Peter Seaton Clark, who do some narrations, carried out with the writer of Exit Centre Stage. So basically the first question that I wanted to ask you is, because there does seem to be two schools of thought on this, is it Lestrade or Lestrade? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, some years ago, when I was when I was writing that series, uh, there was one Lestrade Lestrade in the London phone book, and I didn't actually have the nerve to ring him or her up and say, "How do you pronounce your name?" <laughs> it's, it's quite funny looking online. I think the consensus, the majority of people, tend to say Lestrade. Yeah, they, they, I, I say illustrate, so take your pick, doesn't there, matter. There does seem to be two schools of thought when you look online, and, and it gets quite heated, especially some really, of our really? American I, cousins. I they, oh, they have a, right, a, a okay. real go about it. <laughs> so it's great. Well, listen, we'll, we'll talk about Lestrade, and Lestrade, Lestrade a little bit later on, <laughs> but I want to concentrate on some of your crime-focused stuff to begin with, because you, you've got a broad range of books that you've written. I mean, we, we, we know all about the fiction and the non-fiction that you've done, whether it's uh, with Peter Maxwell, and obviously mm-hmm. we've got Sholto Lestrade, but you've also done some really interesting historical stuff. For example, there's the classic miscarriage of justice, I guess we all know about in the UK, maybe not around the world so much, Derek Bentley. Tell us a little bit about that case, because that's really interesting. Yes, that was my, my first true crime book, really. And uh, I must admit, it, it wasn't much fun to, to do. There was an awful lot of, of bad feeling uh, about it, which uh, I think has just about dissipated now in that the years have gone by. And, and uh, uh, the conviction against Eric Bentley has uh, at last been uh, overturned. Yeah, that happened in 98. Because he was hanged. Yeah. Uh, basically, the, the story is that two, two young lads, Christopher Craig and Derek Bentley, went out to uh, commit uh, burglary to break into a warehouse in, in Croydon, south of London, uh, in November 1952. Christopher Craig was 16. He was armed with a gun. Um, Derek Bentley, at 19, was uh, unarmed uh, and, uh, as it turned out, completely defenseless. He was uh, a very tall lad at six foot four, but he had um, uh, an IQ of 66 and was really very, very limited indeed, very childlike. Um, someone saw the lads on the roof of the warehouse, called the police, and the police came very promptly, and there was uh, basically a shootout on the rooftop of this warehouse in which one policeman was wounded and another was killed by Christopher Craig. Now, Derek Bentley was actually under arrest when the um, second uh, policeman was uh, was hurt and subsequently died. Um, he did not fire a shot. Uh, he was not involved in that directly at all. Um, even so, the law of the land said then, and still says today, uh, that if uh, one or more people are involved in a, a felonious enterprise, that is, if they, if they go out to commit a crime and someone is hurt or killed as a result of that, then everybody concerned is equally guilty. 
So in the eyes of the law, Derek Bentley was as guilty of the murder of the policeman as Christopher Craig. Yeah, this is the idea um, of joint enterprise, the jury were directed to find by Lord Goddard, the Lord Chief Justice, the senior judge who uh, presided over the case. Um, and Derek Bentley was duly found guilty and was duly hanged at Wandsworth. Uh, in uh, January 1953, there was a huge out- outcry about the whole thing. His his family uh, tried every possible means to to try and get the death sentence commuted to one of life imprisonment because of of Derek's limited capability, because he hadn't actually committed the crime himself. Uh, but it it didn't work. Um, there was something of a juvenile crime wave at the time, and I think the authorities thought that this is one way of uh, of making people. Uh, behave and, and realize that basically you don't cross that certain line. You, you've got a, a lot of interest in this kind of thing, haven't you? Because you also dealt with, I mean, apart from the Derek Bentley case, which was a bit of a cool celeb back in the 50s, sure. um, you've also dealt with the, the Wigwam murders, which the wigwam murder this was, is Canadian, was really is that right? Very, very different in, in, in the sense of, of the response that I got from people that I, uh, I needed to help me with the book. This was a, a, a murder that took place uh, during World War II um, in Surrey, in England, and um, uh, it, it featured a, a, a Canadian soldier. He was a, a, a half-breed um, Cree Canadian, uh, they're known as Mickey, uh, a guy called Auguste Sangre, and um, he was uh, found guilty of um, killing his, his girlfriend, a 16-year-old runaway called uh, Joan Wolfe. Um, the importance in this case really is, is the amazing piece of forensic science that was carried out by um, uh, Simpson, who was the uh, uh, chief pathologist at the time. Uh, able to work out not only uh, exactly when Joan was killed from the uh, state of decomposition of her body, it was found in a, in a wood, um, but uh, he was also able to work out that she'd been attacked first from the front with a, a, a knife with a very unusual blade. Um, the, the blade itself had a broken tip, and that left very distinctive marks in the skull. Uh, she was then finished off by being battered from behind uh, with uh, a tree branch. Uh, and uh, it was something of a first to forensic science because Simpson actually brought the um, skull that he's fitted together again. It was obviously in, in pieces. He fitted the skull together, brought it into the courtroom. And that's the first time in British legal history that that was, that was done. Gray was found guilty and uh, was executed. Uh, I'm still not sure he, he, he did it. Yeah, the, the, because when the jury returned the verdict, they asked for mercy, didn't they? They asked so for mercy. So there was some yes, question. Mark. And, and that, that is, uh, as they did, of course, for, for Derek Bentley. And, and uh, this, there must have been a reason for doing that. I, I don't think they were totally convinced either. Um, I, maybe uh, because it was wartime, a, a hard line had, had to be taken. It's quite interesting that, of course, some uh, during World War II, um, the American forces based in Britain uh, had their own separate courts that they were tried totally separately from the British system, uh, whereas the Canadians, because they were part of what was still then the empire, uh, came under British jurisdiction. Let's, let's have a look at some of the, the historical things that you've done as well. Kit Marlowe, for example, Christopher Marlowe, who some would suggest was possibly Shakespeare, possibly not. We, maybe we, <laughs> we'll never know. Vlad the Impaler... Boudicca, yeah. Bodicea, Canute, Spartacus, you've done a lot of historical research into these sure. things. Sure, yeah, yeah. 
very, very quick snapshot of, of Christopher Marlowe. Most books will tell you he was killed in, in a tavern brawl in Deptford uh, in 1593. It was a fight over a bill, um, which is fine until you look at the people he was with. Uh, and we know that uh, at least two of them were involved in espionage and spying, uh, as, of course, was Marlowe himself. And it suddenly becomes a little bit different. Um, we have the... Uh, uh, coroner's inquest report still, uh, written almost entirely in Latin, um, and it doesn't make any, any sense. They were supposedly playing backgammon. Uh, Marlowe wasn't. Marlowe was lying on, on a bed watching his backgammon game going on. Um, the, the bill is given to Marlowe. He refuses to pay. He has a fight with one of the others, a man called Ingram Fraser. Um, he attacks Fraser from behind, and Fraser fights back, uh, turns Marlowe's knife on himself, and the knife goes through Marlowe's eye socket into his brain and kills him. Um, nice. There is no mention of what the other two men are doing. They don't run away, they don't get involved and try and separate them, they don't do anything. And that made me incredibly suspicious. What are those two doing while this supposed fight is going on? Uh, answer, they were all involved in killing Christopher Marlowe for, for, for highly complex uh, reasons to do with the government, to do with espionage and so on. I think Marlowe was basically a whistleblower. He, he knew things about the government of the day uh, that they simply didn't want to be known, so he had to be silenced. And Walsingham was not the kind of person that you mess with? Walsingham was not the kind of person you'd mess with. No, he was actually dead by the time Marlowe died, but we know that um, uh, Marlowe certainly worked for him. Walsingham was Elizabeth's spymaster. He, he was the sort of M equivalent in the, in the Bond movies. Um, certainly a, a very chilling and, uh, and ruthless sort of character. Uh, and I think that uh, had he been alive and had he been instructed to do so, he wouldn't have hesitated to have had Marlowe killed. And in, in a lot of your work, there is always this common thread of people doing unsavoury things to each other. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I must admit, I'm fascinated by the kind of dark, macabre side of, 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 of history. Uh, I mean, uh, an awful lot of uh, our lives are spent, uh, thankfully, with, with happy things and, and, you know, family and enjoyment and entertainment and the whole thing. Uh, but underneath, uh, there is this, there is this, this thread, uh, as you say, that, that, that is there. Um, violence is never actually very far away. Uh, and I, I always remind myself that we are actually animals. We may be higher animals, but we're animals. And it doesn't take much to tip some of us over the edge. It's true. I have a th- I have a three and a half year old daughter, so I know all about the animal <laughs> instinct. The, the rage well, that can go. come from small children is deeply terrifying. Um, so, so anyway, you've you've also got a particular affinity for Victorian time, which we'll come on to illustrate in a minute. Um, a couple of interesting things. Firstly, though, you've you've got a, uh, an interest with the uh, Jack the Ripper story, mm-hmm. and of course, also the torso murders. I know this is your current project, and yes. I'm assuming this is the London torso murders, not the one in Ohio. Um, yes, it is. It's the it's the Thames one. Yeah. Right yeah. now, I was doing a little bit of research about this because everybody knows Jack the Ripper. Um, yep. for anybody that's listening in America, they will. Obviously, this will be the most famous, the sort of archetypal serial killer that, that we know about. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is that there were actually more people were killed in the Torso murders than Jack the Ripper, and it was going on at the same time. Eight bodies, I think, in the in, in the Torso case, and, yeah. and it predates Jack. 
Oh, um, right. Jack the Ripper was, was killing uh, basically in the autumn of 1888. I, I think there's a bit of uh, overspill in the following summer of 89. But there's a space of, of torso killings along the Thames between May 87 and 89. But there are also earlier ones uh, going back to 1873-4. He, he predates Jack. He is therefore um, possibly the, the world's first serial killer. Yeah, well, I mean, the statistic I saw, which was really interesting, was that in 1882, out of the Thames, 544 bodies were pulled out in just one year, <laughs> half of which uh, were unsolved. A lot of those would be suicides. Um, a, a, a horribly high number would be infants uh, who, who were uh, either stillborn uh, or they, they were born to single mothers who couldn't afford to keep them, uh, and so they are just quietly disposed of. And there is no doubt, I mean, one of the chapters in, in the book I'm writing, I, I called it the River of Death, because uh, the, the, the Thames is definitely a place where, where bodies were, were put on a, on a, a frightening regular basis. What makes the torso um, case different, of course, is that we are talking about very, very clinical and, and anatomically correct dismemberment here. Uh, this is not just killing somebody in a, in a bit of peak, in, a, in an outburst of temper and dumping them. This is somebody who, who places them in certain positions uh, along the Thames, and we don't know why. Because that's also the link with Jack the Ripper, isn't it? That the murders sure. there, there was anatomical knowledge by the person that did it. Personally, the, the anatomical knowledge of the torso killer is, is higher than Jack's. Um, b because I, I wrote a book last year which, which names Jack, um, uh, I, I put uh, a guy called Robert Mann in, in the frame. Robert Mann was a, a mortuary uh, attendant, so he would have been handling corpses on a regular basis. He would have watched surgeons carry out post-mortems, but he wasn't a medical man himself. Um, th there is a definitely a, a higher degree of skill involved in, in the torso killings. At the time, of course, the, the press had a field day Although the police never believed it, the, the, the press were anxious to say that all these murders uh, were carried out by, by Jack, and that simply doesn't make sense in terms of, of the MO, in terms of, of the way in which the killings took place. So let's, let's move on now to on the subject of Victorian police. And, of course, our main character that I want to talk to you about today is, is, of course, Inspector Lestrade. Now, you started writing about him back in 1985 with the adventures of Inspector Lestrade. That's right, yep. Why? Why choose him? I chose him because um, at the time I, I was watching the black and white films on television, Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes, Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. And I love those films, but it's a kind of love-hate relationship because Holmes annoyed me so intensely. He was so arrogant, so cocksure, so superior. And at various points during the film, this, this tall actor, whose name I don't know, would appear at the door with his bowler hat in his arm, and he would say in, in a very bad cockney, we need your help down at the yard, Mr. Holmes. We can't cope with these cases by ourselves. Now, that was Inspector Lestrade. Uh, and I thought, wouldn't it be fun to turn the tables? Wouldn't it be fun to have Lestrade as um, a very competent detective actually finding murderers? Uh, and let's have Holmes as uh, an idiot, a buffoon, um, the sort of part-time detective who gets in the way of the police and really has no clue as to what he's doing. And really, that the whole 16-book series began from there. It is quite interesting, this, isn't it? Because Lestrade, when we, you think of him or you ask people in the street what their general opinion of him is, they say he's the bumbling idiot, he doesn't really know what he's doing, Sherlock saves the day, etc., etc. But that's sure. not actually yeah. true with the canon, is it? 
uh, and I think in, in many ways, uh, if, if you read the, uh, the Conan Doyle original, there is there's a kind of soft spot that Holmes has for him. Uh, I, I think he, he, he is sympathetic, and, and he's perfectly happy, of course, because the kind of, of character that Holmes is, he doesn't want the limelight himself. So he's perfectly happy to let the straight take the, the, the accolade of, of having solved the crime. Yeah, it's interesting. The, uh, in the recent film that's come out, there is that scene, isn't there, between Lestrade and Sherlock Holmes, where... Yeah, forgive me, the, I, I haven't seen this, so you, you have to tell me. What, well, basically, what it's, it's, there's quite a famous quote, isn't there, where Lestrade actually says, because everybody thinks there's this horrible antagonism between the two characters, and in actual sure. fact, Lestrade says, actually, all the boys in Scotland Yard, we're proud of you. That's, and it's uh, right. Watson yes, quotes yes. that as being yes, the I, only I, I time that Holmes has moved. Like, we'd be proud to shake your hands, that's right, yeah. yes, absolutely. About a hundred years ago, we got together on the Isle of Wight uh, <laughs> with with a few uh, interesting thespians and people, uh, including, of course, Kenneth Kendall and your good self. You managed to, to flex your acting muscles as well. And we we put together, it's uh, actually in three parts, three 15-minute episodes of Exit Centre Stage, mm-hmm. A Yarn of the Yard, A Lestrade Tale. Now, this features a number of famous people, as indeed most of your Lestrade stories actually do, whether it's G.K. Chesterton or Lestrade breaking his leg, falling off the gangplank of the Titanic. There's always some historically interesting people in the background. So tell us a little bit about Exit Centre Stage without giving away the Exit ending. Exit Centre Stage really came, came out of um, my meeting with the actor Michael Shear, who, who sadly is no longer with us. Uh, Michael lived on the island and uh, he contacted me and said, why aren't your books uh, on the telly? Why aren't they uh, in films? And I said, yes, quite. I've been wondering that myself. And he said, well, look, he said, I, I can't guarantee to get you all on the telly, but wouldn't it be fun if we, if we got together and... and produce something for, for radio. Uh, and so I did. I, I, I wrote a, a, a separate um, piece called, as you say, Exit Centre Stage, uh, featuring a few of the sort of great illustrators um, I'd either met in, in books or was about to meet in later books with those mid-series then. Um, and, uh, and really, that's, that's how it happened. It was, it was enormous fun to do. Uh, an actor called Reginald Marsh, who again, sadly, is no longer with us, uh, played Australia. And I thought you did very well. It's exactly the, the kind of um, delivery that uh, I, I would want the straight to have. It was a great day. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But there was slightly awestruck, sat opposite Reginald Marsh and sort of Kenneth Kendall lurking around in the background, and sort of Michael Sheard. <laughs> that, that's and there was exactly me. right. I, mean, I, I have a, <laughs> a faded photograph somewhere from the local paper of, of us all um, drinking champagne. There's Michael uh, and Kenneth uh, and Reg and, and me. And I mean, I'm I'm the unknown and <laughs> these three famous guys. You know, it's, it's, it's lovely. <laughs> it was great. It was, it it was a very, really good day, and I'm very much looking forward to listening to it again because I, I haven't heard it for about ten or twelve years now. No, no, nor have I. Nor it's have I. Just my shame. I, I know I have a, a copy of the tape here somewhere, but I couldn't actually put my hand on it. But you're right; it was it was great fun to do. Uh, really, really superb day. And and the, the beauty of it all, of course, was that it, it was all it was all set up by your good self. I mean, it was just it was it was 
but I just walked in, did my bit, and walked out again. It was, it was, it was magic. <laughs> it, was, it was a very strange. It was a very strange time. I had delusions of grandeur. I was going to be the next Cameron <laughs> Macintosh or something. I, I don't you know. Did a great quite job. Well. Great job. But I tell you something. <laughs> something quite scary is we're actually giving away the date there by saying yes. I've got it on tape somewhere. My children, I'm <laughs> yes, sure, have no Absolutely. idea what a tape it's funny is. How technology has, has caught up with us. <laughs> Exa- exactly. And my uh, my ex-wife has said, yeah, yeah, I'll find the tape for you. I'll put it onto CD and then I'll send it to you. Right. Just do an MP3 or something. So, so yeah, so modern technology. So everybody that's going to be listening all over the world, this is really exciting. This is the first uh, international broadcast of yeah, cool. Inspector Lestrade and Exit Centre Stage. Mitro, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, Peter. Bye-bye. 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 And don't forget, before we kind of jump into the kind of final kickoff of this vintage serial, we still have, well, there's actually, as recording this, there is three tickets left for Amy H. Sturgis's video live lecture in February. I think it's the 18th of February. If you, if, you know what I mean? If you want one of them, you've got a one in three chance there. Pop, I'd love to see it. It would be fantastic. First time we're doing it with video as well. So, you know, it's just fun. I'm just chuffed a bit, you know what I mean? And that people have kind of signed up for that as well. So if you want a ticket, please, you've got three chances to get one. That would be lovely to see you there. Episode three. Trevelyan Cavendish, one of the Victorian theatre's best-known thespians, has been foully murdered by poison on the stage of the Adelphi Theatre. Inspector Sholter Lestrade, doyen of Scotland Yard, has assembled the suspects on the stage. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You've been very patient. We have, indeed. But we do all have homes to go to. Of course, Mr Wilde. Although I'm afraid one of you will not be going to it tonight. What do you mean, Mr God? You can't mean that one of us... Oh, I can, Sir Arthur. You yourself gave me several leads. Arthur, how could you? I realise that talking to you all like this is contrary to the policy of Scotland Yard, not even the sort of thing you'd find in the worst of the penny dreadfuls. But time is pressing... And I feel you all deserve a reward for your patience. <laughs> That's very good. I like that enormously. Get on with it, Lestrade. I have a theatre to run. Beerbone Tree will be here at nine. There'll be the devil to pay. I haven't stripped a set yet. Very well. I have talked to you all in the course of my inquiries, and, of course, the murderer could be the one who found the body. Shorter. Oh, calm yourself, Harry. All I'm saying is I've known it before. But in this case, what motive do we have? Trevelyan Cavendish is rude to Letitia Bandicoot, so Letitia Bandicoot murders him? <laughs> a little thin, you'll agree. No, the motive had to be more meaningful than that. So, what about you, Mr Dysart? Me? The manager, whose theatre is not doing very well, is it? I couldn't help noticing your peeling paperwork, Mr Dysart. Your single row of limelights where the trocadero has three. The fact that I had to send my constable out an hour ago because you have no telephone machine in your office. You needed money. And you got some of that money from Trevelyan Cavendish. Except it wasn't enough, and he wanted it back. Is that why you killed him? That's outrageous! I didn't coat his glass with carbolic acid. (laughs) No, no, you didn't. Which brings us to Lord Ferrers. Would you be so kind as to show us your hip flask, my lord? Why are you... Oh, very well. Harry, would you care to smell the contents of that? Brandy. Not pretty good, I'm afraid. I beg your pardon? So that isn't how the poison was administered. Phenol gives off a distinctive odour, 
The sort of thing, ladies and gentlemen, that your maids clean household gadgets with. With which your maids clean household gadgets? Precisely, Mr Wilde. Even in Tight Street, Chelsea. You know where I live. Oh, yes, Mr Wilde, and where you hang out. And talking of hanging out, what exactly was your relationship with Trevelyan Cavendish? Relationship? I have nothing to declare but my innocence. Indeed, Mr Wilde. Nothing I can touch you for, anyway. Wait until you're asked. Then, of course, there is Dame Ellen. What? Public humiliation must be a terrible thing for someone in your position. The jeers of the crowd. He left you unaltered at the altar. Can you ever forgive him for that? For that, never. But I'd rather take every opportunity to exact my revenge. Death is too quick, too permanent. One gargle and it's all over. Oh, phenol, of course, can take 24 hours. Mr Cavendish seems to have succumbed very quickly. He always did. But, of course, there were others with a motive. For example, Messrs Gilbert and Sullivan, those whose West End productions were nearly ruined by him. But for that reason, Dame Ellen, you would be lying next door as well. Now, what puzzled me for a long time was the murder weapon. Weapon? Oh, yes. I must admit, it's a new one on me. Trevelyan Cavendish swallowed poison, and not intentionally. For all his career may have been grinding to a halt, he was not the suicidal type. It couldn't have been mixed in the champagne, or somebody else would be conducting this inquiry now on several of us. So, my reason, Cavendish's glass. But phenol has a powerful smell. The glass had none. That's why, pardon me, my lord, I asked Harry to smell Lord Ferrer's hip flask a moment ago. No phenol there either. So, unless Letitia held the man down and poured it down his throat from a container I have yet You're to find... You're floundering, Lestrade. We troopers know all about that. It's an old theatrical adage. If in doubt, walk about. Lord, what on earth? That's, that, that smell. You haven't smelt it before? God, no. I'd have remembered. Not at Monsieur Morris's, for instance? Eh? Allow me to present an accessory to murder. In this little bottle that I wafted under Mr. Wilde's nose a moment ago, go lightly's gum for flyaway hair. Eh? What? Eh? It's an expensive glue. Several of you told me how proud Mr Cavendish was of his hair, except that it wasn't his own, was it? Only some of it. That's why the arrogant old actor did his own hair. Wanted no one else to know. So the poison's in there? No, Sir Arthur. The poison's here, in this comb. What? <laughs> My God! Carbolic! Precisely. But if you have a notion of this... <laughs> then you smell this... I can't smell a blessed thing after that dreadful gun. Exactly. Neither could Cavendish. The teacher, when the show was over, where did Cavendish go? Dressing room. Why? I don't know. I do. To adjust his hairpiece. Harry, you dropped his cloak in Act Two. You didn't notice anything odd? Uh, in bending over, Trevelyan Cavendish came unglued. I saw it, but in all the excitement since, I've forgotten it. The end of the show was the first chance he had to get himself together, as it were. Now, if I remember rightly, all of you were on the stage at the time, except Sir Arthur, Mr Gilbert, Mr Wilde, and Lord and Lady Ferris. This was an opportunist killing, ladies and gentlemen. Our murderer came here last night intended to kill Trevelyan Cavendish, and with phenol. But exactly how was it to be administered? That was inspirational, wasn't it, Lady Ferris? I thought so. 
Would you be so good as to take off your emeralds? Now, look here. It's all right, Bertie. Don't fuss so. I'm afraid this clever gentleman here has rather spoiled our night, my dear. If you don't mind, Mr. Lestrade, I won't let you crush my emeralds underfoot. Even though you're right in what you're thinking, they are paste. Just as Bertie's hip flask isn't silver, it's electro-plated nickel silver. Just as the brandy he drinks is a little below par, Harry. Just as the fund for which I've been collecting all these years doesn't go into any cause. No cause, that is, except mine. There was no telephone in your office, Mr. Dysart. So I sent my constable to Lord Ferrer's bankers, Mrs. Coote. Uh, they didn't take kindly to being woken up in the wee small hours, but there it is. Sharp chappy, my constable. He has a diploma from the London Polytechnic in double-entry bookkeeping. Lord Ferrer's is in debt to an amount that would buy the Adelphi ten times over. Now, bankers are discreet people, at least most of them. Lord Ferrer's secret was safe with Mrs. Coates, but it wasn't safe with the likes of Trevelyan Cavendish, was it, Lady Ferrer? Apparently not. The disgusting wretch learned that we Ferrers are in hock up to our escutcheon. What with Bertie's habits, the drink, the horses, a few unwise investments such as the Tay Railway, etc., we'd lost it all. It would have been the end of a family going back to the conquest. Oh, my darling, that perfect beast of a man was about to tell the newspapers. His own career was waning, and he saw the princely sum they offered him for his scandal-mongering as the passport to a secure retirement. Those acting lessons you thought I was having were my feeble attempt to get him to change his mind. It didn't work. Good Lord, Effie. You silly thing. It didn't matter. Oh, yes, it did, Bertie. I know what the family name means to you. What it has always meant to you. For the past three years, I've been siphoning off the funds I've been raising to keep the bailiffs away. And then only yesterday, an appalling little man told me he was going to the news of the world and failing them to horse and hound. I bought the phenom. Poison is the woman's weapon, isn't it? Anyway, when the snivelling wretch's wig slipped, I'm amazed, my dear Ellen, that you didn't know he wore one. I thought all women noticed such things. When I saw it slip, I saw my chance. I excused myself from the box, all eyes were on Mr. Wilde at that stage anyway, and popped back to Cavendish's dressing room. The abomination didn't know was that I had seen once, during rehearsals, the way he teased his own hair to cover the lines of his wig. He placed his comb in his teeth. The smell, as Mr. Lestrade has proved, would be hidden by Golightly's gum. So I smeared the comb liberally with the phenol. By the time he'd sucked on those toxic teeth, it would be all over. I expect he grimaced a little, but he obviously had time to wash it all down with at least one glass of champagne. That's as well. I wouldn't have denied him his last tipple. Oh, now, Bertie, don't take on so. They haven't hanged a member of the aristocracy since Lord Lovett. That was in 1741 or thereabouts. Well, I shall come quietly, Mr. Lestrade. Do you have any bracelets to match my emeralds? Thank you, Your Ladyship. I don't think that will be necessary. By the way, I understand they have a lovely little theatre in Holloway. Now I can count on your support, can't I? In Exit Centre Stage, A Yarn of the Yard by M.J. Trove, the narrator was Kenneth Kendall and the cast was as follows. Inspector Lestrade, Reginald Marsh. Sir Arthur Sullivan, Bernard Meacher. William Gilbert, Michael Shear. Oscar Wilde, Peter Lewis. Lady Eveline Ferrers, Barbara Walter. Trevelyan Cavendish, Ronald Good. Harry Bandicoot, James Pellow. Letitia Bandicoot, Carol Glover. 
Dysart, my troll. Dame Ellen, Rosalind Alloway. Lord Ferrers, Ronald Good. The series produced by Michael Sheard. Studio direction by Dennis Chubb and Samantha Seaton Clark. I quite enjoy that. I quite like bringing some like you know, vintage stuff, you know, especially with the stories as well. We can kind of bring old ones from Gutenberg and play them on the show as well. So that would be lovely. Little, you know, before we go, a little call out. If you want to narrate for Starships over or now, Tales to Terrify, got to keep them stories chugging along there. Any number of stories we're getting, but, you know, we'd eat. It's always nice to have narrators. If you fancy... You know, letting your voice croon across the airwaves. Get in touch with us. Starshipsover at gmail.com. Right, honestly, if you can buy what Matt Smith's having, you know what I mean? Actually, if you can, it should be illegal because bloody very small doses. If you get your hands on what Matt's got, very small doses. Matt. <laughs> Just fab. <laughs> Hello, you fiction crawlies. I am the creepy, crabby hermit Matthew Sanborn-Smith, and this is the suddenly annual fiction crawler. Trying to read this one slower than I did last time, but I just get so excited. The fiction crawler spirit tickles my insides. I wanted to get at least one show in this year, not to get on the Sofanauts ballot, if there's going to be one, but because there are a handful of you who really dig me. That's a real gas, baby. And if you like gassy babies, you'll love me. And I wanted to do it now because there's still time to nominate your favorite stories for the upcoming award season. Hugo's, Nebula's, and probably a half a dozen others. And I wanted to share a few stories that I like that could use your boosters if you feel likewise. If you're not eligible to vote or even nominate, find out if you can change that eligibility. And if not, just shake your fist while enjoying some good fiction. There are going to be a few sofa-related mentions here, folks, which may strike you as incestuously log-rolling as some good tree-beard porn. But hey, I'm not holding your hand down to the keyboard. You can listen or read and make up your own open mind. Before we get into my picks, I want to remind you all that the sofa cushions firmly support Cory Doctorow's The Martian Chronicles, with which, as a listener of this show, you may have some passing familiarity. I like the fact that everyone is covered in everyone else's bodily fluids, as well as the story's lefty lessons, though 1% of you might feel otherwise. Strange Horizons features the Starship Sofa's own Grant Stone with the story Young Love on the Run from the Federal Alien Administration, New Mexico Division, 1984, which may be a long enough title to qualify as a short story all by itself. In the New Mexican desert, a man picks up a woman whose skin is the color of the sky. They fall in love and take apart television sets as they try to escape to a place where no man in gray suits will ever dog them again. Grant lets you taste freedom and newly wedded romance, both tinged with an underlying powerlessness throbbing in your chest like the engine of a beat-up Datsun racing all the way across the American Southwest. Sounds nice when I say it like that, but what the hell does that mean? Go read the story and find out for yourself. The guy's got the chops. Now, since you're at Strange Horizons anyway, go read the story 8 by Corinne Dalvis, a very clever, cool time travel story. Mona Washington travels back in time from the future to warn herself while still a cadet at West Point and to warn her superiors about the horrific war that lies in their future. Mona hopes to prevent it by arming her past self with the knowledge she needs to do things right this time. Only months later, the next Mona Washington, that forewarned, forearmed Mona Washington, comes back from the future having failed to prevent the disaster that lies ahead. But hey, it's time travel, right? We can do it again and do it right this time. 
Watch as the future Mona Washingtons begin to pile up in one timeline. Though they all share the same ultimate goal, each of these women have lived their own lives, made their own decisions, met different people, or sometimes the same people. Each of these women gave up everything, and now all they have are shared notes on the ones they've left behind. They try and fix the future for everybody, including herself. Go check out Morgan Dempsey's The Memory Gatherer at Redstone Science Fiction. In it, the orphan Kara scavenges for computer parts through the robotic rubble of war-torn beaches and harvests memories from human beings almost as broken as the bots they fought. With all of this, she tries to assemble some imitation of her deceased father out of the bits and pieces that were never his to begin with. She's skilled enough that the construct seems to believe that it is her father, the man who damaged her and her brother years ago. She's skilled enough that she starts to believe it herself, finally having something physical to weigh her down as much as her father's ghost has for all the years since his death. Fantastic writing from a fantastic new writer. Go get you some. Now skip over to Tor.com for the story Six Months, Three Days by Charlie Jane Anders. The last three writers I've mentioned are all pretty new to the publishing game, but Charlie's a veteran, and of the great and wildly inventive stories she has, this is one of the best. The setup is right there in the first sentence and should be all that's needed to entice you. The man who can see the future has a date with the woman who can see many possible futures. Huh? Huh? See what I'm saying? You've got to wonder about these two people who know each other's problems and petty vices and the issues they'll have with each other before they even meet. Why do they even want to play this out? Have you ever asked yourself the same thing when you knew you were headed down the wrong road but saw those open arms waiting for you halfway through? Seeing the future doesn't seem like so much of an advantage. Especially to Doug, who feels locked into the one and only possible future, playing out his life like an actor stuck in a decades-long role. Judy, on the other hand, wades through, convinced that there are a lot of different ways their relationship and their lives can work out. Neither of them believe the other's vision of tomorrow is the right one. Ever have a fight about a fight you're going to have in the future? Frickin' non-precognitive love is complicated enough. This one is as big and complex as real life, with characters that are equal to the story's reach. It's beautiful, and you curl up into a ball, bracing yourself for the train wreck ending that all of you, you and Doug and Judy, see coming. Even when you know what's coming, you can't stop. You've got to see it through. Next up is Grady Hendrix's transcript of interaction between astronaut Mike Scudderman and the OnStar hands-free AI crash advisor. All right, maybe this title can compete in the same category as Grant's title. No offense to Lightspeed or John Joseph Adams, but I couldn't believe my ears when I heard actual funny stuff coming from the Lightspeed podcast. I mean, JJA has a reputation, what with zombies and dystopiae and apocalypsi, and geez, you just want to get out into the sunlight and hug a koala bear or something after you've read too much of that. Well, thank you, Grady Hendrix, because this story, whose name I don't have time to repeat, is a laugh-out-loud blast. What starts in frustration with one of those damn stupid intelligent machines after a crash landing on an alien planet meanders through a wonderful host of tired old science fiction tropes poking holes in each one of them along the way. It's too short to tell you any more without giving you spoilers. Just go read it or listen to it. And in case you think Lightspeed went soft with this one, rest assured there's plenty of death and destruction. It's just funny death and destruction. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you're already familiar with Genevieve Valentine's gorgeous story, The Sandal Bride. But if you're a mere sofa dabbler, first of all, please wipe up after yourself and then shoot over to Starship Sofa 179 for a listen. The Sandal Bride is a tale of a trader who makes a deal to give a lift to a remarkably ugly woman who is traveling to meet her husband in another city. The tale unfolds and opens like a flower as the lives of disparate travelers intersect and what could be a series of really uncomfortable campouts turns out to be what life is all about. Any more and I'll give too much away of that one, too. But the joy is in the journey here, both literally and figuratively. This was absolutely one of the best of 2011. 
Links for all of these stories are in the show notes. It was a great year for short fiction, and I wanted to make sure that in all the hubbub, Bub, you didn't miss out on these that might not have otherwise crossed your screens. Cross my heart. Eat them up, and if you like these stories like I like these stories like, nominate, vote, tell your friends about them, and encourage them to nominate and vote, assuming that they like them, like you, like them, like I like them, like. That's it for me. Hey, same time next year. If you buy me Turkish Delights, I might consider coming back sooner. And I don't even know what Turkish Delights are. But they sound delightful and turkey. Or if you threaten my life a little, I may hold back from this neck-breaking schedule. This continues to be Matthew Sanborn Smith, father of his own one-man country, wishing you a delightful amount of everyone else's bodily fluids in the new year. Arrivederci! Walla walla bing bang! Matt, I want you to come over here and we'll we'll, we'll put you up over here. You need some therapy. <laughs> Matt, honestly, I just love fiction crawl. Do you know what I mean? I love. Listen, if you haven't kind of, if you you've been and you've just started listening to Starship Sova and you don't know about fiction crawl, but you, or you don't even know about where the hairy mango, what Matt does as well. Actually, Matt's show that shows an early up to a hundred now as well. So get over there to beware the hungry, hairy mango and have a listen to Matt Sambo and Smith. It's like that, just faster. <laughs> Matt, you're a star. Everybody, thank you so much for kind of like say listen to this show. It's been fantastic. Do you know consider dropping a donation or sign up to the kind of the monthly donations that would certainly help Starship so far. And don't forget what what would be really nice as well. Just thought about this writing little reviews in iTunes, especially for Tales to Terrify. That'll bump it up into the kind of stratosphere as well. So that would be fantastic. So until next week, just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply compromising their honor and artistic judgment. Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a valuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.